Today's scripture reading comes from Revelation 3, 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled, soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, and let me make note for those of you who feel like you've lost your regular seat. Why is this structured this way? We had a beautiful wedding here last night, and we looked around, and we said, yeah, this will work. So we kept it. So thanks for your flexibility um, and finding a seat that worked for you this morning. My name is Gabe Coyle. I am the campus pastor here at Christ Communities Downtown Campus. And this morning, we have a wonderful treat. We have a really good friend of mine um, and colleague, Andrew Jones, the campus pastor at our Leewood campus, who will be here preaching this morning and walking through a really difficult text. I was like, dude, I'm not doing this. Can you do it? And he's like, yeah, sure, why not? He's really courageous. Um, he's really faithful. And I have to tell you, the first time we met each other, this isn't going to surprise anybody who actually knows me. I was a complete and utter dork. Um, so I met him in seminary. He's a year ahead of me in seminary and in life broadly. Um, <laughs> maturity, all those things. Andrew's ahead of me. Um, and I stepped onto the campus. He was my RA. I'd borrowed some clothes from my stepdad. I had like this crazy hairdo. I cut in my beard into a mustache and used crazy phrases the whole first day of seminary. Even got my student ID picture didn't realize that every time through the rest of my seminary years, my professors would look me up, and that was the picture they saw, which was really great. But I walked into the dormitory, and who do I meet? But Andrew Jones and his first thought, and maybe his continued thought is, oh, Lord Jesus, help us. Um, <laughs> and he has, and he has. And here we are, surprised probably to both of us that we're good friends um, to this day. Um, love him dearly. Love him dearly. I don't know. There it is. Uh, no, love, love, love him dearly. And I'd love to invite Andrew Jones up here. Can we give him a round of applause? Welcome him. Yeah, put that up there. That's great. Perfect. Okay, why don't we, uh, <laughs> why don't we pray together? Okay, shall we? God, thank you so much that we get to be on this mission together across five campuses for your glory across Kansas City. And God, we ask that this morning, um, may we have just this shared communion with Andrew. May his heart and his spirit be among us. May your spirit be working through him, piercing our hearts, reminding us of the truth of your word, convicting us of our own falsehoods, our own self-deception and the ways in which we often try to lead our lives without you. God, thank you so much for Andrew and the ways you've gifted him and called him. May we as the church be built up through your words and through his gifts this morning. All for your glory. 
And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for that intro, that almost really nice introduction, Gabe. Uh, so I, I, I have been at Christ Community uh, almost 10 years now. And so I've seen a lot of the history of the downtown campus just kind of firsthand. And I said this first service too, but you guys have something really special here. If, if you're, you, got, you guys who are already part of this family, you already know that. If you're new here this morning, this is a special place. Um, and to see what God has done over 10 years, uh, it still chokes me up, but I'm, I have to preach, so I'm going to keep going. Uh, and uh, I, this is now, I think, my second time preaching here downtown. I, I think the last time I did it was about two beards ago for Gabe, so it's been, <laughs> it's been a couple of uh, years. Um, but uh, it's great. It's seriously, it's a, it's a real joy for me to be here. So uh, thinking about this sermon this week and this text uh, made me think of a movie. So you guys are just going to have to indulge me because I don't know, not everyone's a movie person. But it made me think of a movie that's, that's really held up the last couple of uh, decades. Um, <laughs> man, I sound so old. So I, I, I still remember watching this movie in high school and being blown away by it. So to kind of warm us up here a little bit, I'm going to give you three clues. You're going to have to guess what movie I'm talking about, okay? So the first clue is Bruce Willis. Die Hard. Die, it's not Die Hard. Good guess, though, Charlie. Uh, second is M. Night Shyamalan, when he was still really cool. Shh, shh. I'm not done yet. <laughs> the third is I See Dead People. There, okay, Sixth Sense, now you got it. So uh, that came out in 1999, which is, right? Okay, anyway, uh, it was nominated, I don't know if you remember this, it was nominated for like six Academy Awards. It's like Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Director, Best uh, Original Screenplay, all this kinds of stuff. And the performances, the wardrobe doesn't hold up, but the performances really do. I, I kind of went back and watched a little bit of it. Uh, a couple of weeks ago. But what really makes this movie a classic, it's why many of you remembered it, is the plot twist at the end of the movie. Now, it's been 20 years, so I'm going to spoil this for you. And if, if you haven't seen it yet, that is your fault. That is entirely your fault. Uh, and when we're done, if you haven't seen it, you don't have to watch it. I just saved you two hours of your life, so you're welcome. But anyway, so the main character is Bruce Willis. He's a psychiatrist, and he gets connected to this young boy who claims to see dead people. And the whole movie is them kind of working all of this out together. Uh, and what's, what makes the, the plot kind of especially creepy is that the, the dead people, it's Haley Joel Osmond is, is the actor, uh, the dead people he sees don't know they're dead. And so it just creates this really tense kind of interaction. And uh, it's kind of, it becomes his job to help them accomplish something kind of, kind of from beyond the grave is the idea. And uh, at, the, at the end of the movie, uh, after Bruce Willis has, has helped the boy and his mother, and they're, they're in a better place, uh, he goes back. The, the, the last scene, if you remember, is actually him uh, with his wife, Bruce Willis with his wife. And all throughout the movie, they've just had this really awful relationship. It's just cold. It's dead. You can tell there's just something really, really wrong. And so the last scene is his wife is sleeping on the couch, and they've just, they have not been able to communicate at all. And he's sitting there looking at her, and he's try, he's, she's trying to pour his heart out to her, uh, even though she can't hear him, she's asleep. And he says, why is this so broken? And then all of a sudden you hear this, this, this clinking sound and his wedding ring rolls out from under the couch. And he looks down at his own hand and he realizes it's not on his finger anymore. And then all these scenes from the movie replay in his own mind and he begins to realize, and you too at the same time, 
that his character has been dead, even though he thought he was alive the whole movie. And now I've ruined it for you, so don't, you don't have to see it anymore. Um, but what's so incredible, what, makes, what, what, what got this movie nominated for all of those awards is the moment when you as the audience realize, I have been so thoroughly deceived. I did not see this coming. I remember going back to school the next day um, because everyone had gone to see this movie. And the, the whole conversation uh, in high school was, how did we not see it coming? And that was, that was all over television. I mean, it was, it was one of the first movies where it was like, don't spoil, you know, no spoilers. Uh, there was no internet, really, so it was harder to do back then, but we were still worried about it. Um, and I remember everyone in high school saying, how for two hours, we had no idea. We had no idea this was coming. And it's that kind of pit of your stomach, unsettled feeling. We thought he was alive, but he's actually dead. That the church in Sardis feels as they read this letter from Jesus. I think that's the moment we find them in. If you've been with, uh, with us these last couple of weeks, we've been in the book of Revelation uh, unpacking these letters that basically Jesus is dictating to seven local churches in what is now uh, modern-day Turkey. And every time Jesus speaks, he has a different word of warning or encouragement uh, for each of these churches. And Jesus says this to, to our church, Sardis, this morning. This is verse one. He says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You're a dead man walking. You think you're having an impact? You think you're making a difference? But you are not. And this letter is one of the most intense in, in this whole book that Jesus gives. My, I keep picturing Jesus is grabbing this church by the collar, and he is shaking them, saying, wake up, come back to life. This church is so self-deceived, so ignorant to reality that they cannot see they are one foot in the grave. So this is a letter for the church and the Christian who thinks that everything's going great, but it's all a fantasy. It's a dream. So we think we're alive. So what if we think we're alive, but we're actually dead? This is very sobering. And yet, this is a letter written to all the churches for all history. So we need to hear this. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to put ourselves in the place of this church and ask these questions. Are we alive? Are we awake? Are we dying? Are we asleep? So if you brought your Bible, let's do that. Turn to the book of Revelation. It's the last book uh, in the Bible. And we're going to be in chapter 3. Uh, starting in verse 1. Now again, uh, Jesus is writing this to Sardis, which is roughly here. Uh, sorry, this graphic isn't the prettiest thing in the world, um, but I did my best. So Sardis, uh, you'll see it circled there. It's roughly there in, in uh, what was then Asia Minor, what we call now today uh, Turkey. And uh, this, is a, this is a big church. That's the impression you get from Jesus. This is a, this is a growing church, I think. This is, has a great reputation it's one that maybe these other churches look up to, maybe even aspire to, but Jesus sees deeper than all of that. He says, others are impressed by you, I know, but I know better, you're dead. You just don't know it. And here's the thing, unlike these other letters in Revelation, uh, Jesus mentions no external threat for this church. So if you've been in these last few sermons, you know, there's, you know Jesus mentions no false teaching. No brazen idolatry as far as we can tell. No throne of Satan in the middle of the city that's tempting the church away. No secret teachings or Nicolaitans or Balaams or Jezebels or all the other crazy stuff that Jesus has been talking about these last few chapters. Jesus simply looks at this church that says, you 
are your own biggest problem? You. And there's a temptation to look at a church community. I think I understand their problem. There's a temptation to look at a church and say, we are active and we're busy and we're growing and we're, there's lots of good things going on. There's good, there's good deeds. There's a great reputation outside the four walls. We are alive. But Jesus is reminding this church that a thriving, vital outside is not proof of life. Jesus sees deeper than that. It reminds me of an old preacher who gave this illustration. Uh, he, he was really talking about Christians, but you can, the same applies to churches. He, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, was, he, before he became a, a preacher, he was a, a doctor. And he gives a story of, uh, of doing his rounds in the hospital. And he goes into one room, and the, there's a patient moaning, groaning, fever. Looks, looks like on, door, on death's door. Uh, this person's miserable. And he picks up their chart, and it just says common flu over in 36 hours. So, you know, you put the chart back. He goes to another room. Uh, this, this patient is laying in bed, looks bored, reading a magazine, healthy as an ox, picks up the chart, opens it, terminally ill. Right, the outside isn't enough. Sardis feels great. They look great. They could run a mile tomorrow. But Jesus says, you're dying. So how about us? Is our reputation alive and well but our faith is on life support. And there's a lot of ways we, you could take this, or we could, we're, a lot of places we could go. I, I wanted to do this. Whenever, when you read all of these letters together, th- there's a sense in which you can nail down two common illnesses the churches all have. They have one or the other. And this is what threatens them. Uh, so here's the first one. There's a kind of church where... Doing good, doing good for the community, doing the right things is really all that matters. What you believe and what you think about Jesus, not really that important. Let's just make sure we're doing good. This is a church that's very popular often from a human standpoint, very successful looking. It's a church that cares about the poor, takes care of widows, fights for justice, wants to make the world a better place, all amazing, beautiful things. But at the end of the day, As long as it's doing those things, what people believe about Jesus, what they think about him, how they feel for him, doesn't really matter. The mission is, hey, let's just be good people. Let's be good people. Jesus looks at that church and says, you are terminally ill. Because Jesus cares deeply about what we think of him and how we feel for him. He cares about the heart. And that makes sense, right? I mean, apply that logic to any other relationship in your life. If you're married, your spouse, your roommate, your sibling, your your parent, your child, whatever. Think of the most significant relationships in your life. And if you went to them and said, hey, I want to do good by you, I want to take care of you, but I don't really feel that strongly for you, I don't really think that much of you, and I'm not really sure where this is all going, but it's okay because I'm 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 going to treat you right. Is that going to fly with that person? No. That's dead. That's dead. This is Jesus' point. This church may look great on the outside, this church, but it's dying on the inside. But there's another illness, there's another kind of church that is also dead. And it may have a great reputation for its thinking and its teaching. But what we do as a church outside these walls doesn't really matter, doesn't talk about it, doesn't think about it. This is, I call this the holy huddle church. 
This isn't always the case, but you know, they think really well. They teach really well. If you're here for the Ephesian letter, this is kind of them. But they do almost no earthly good. If, the church, if that church disappeared tomorrow, the only people who would notice are the members themselves. No one else would care. Jesus says, that is dead. They may have a great reputation, may have great blogs and books and sermons and articles and podcasts, but it's dead. Jesus, or, uh, Jesus' brother James says the same thing by the letter of his name in the New Testament. He uses the same metaphor. Faith without works is dead. Jesus cares about our witness and our obedience to love our neighbor and to share our faith. Now, here's the thing. I don't want to be either of those churches. I don't think you do either. So how are we doing? More than outward success and applause, what are we striving for? I want to be a church that is alive in the eyes of God. And here's the thing. Like, we know what that means. It's, it's, it's not easy, but it's really clear. Jesus says, I want my church to love God and to love their neighbor. Right? And this can look all kinds of different ways at different times, different contexts, different moments, but it's very, very clear. Jesus always pulls those two things together. He says it matters deeply what you think and feel for, for God, who he is, what he's about. And it matters deeply that you love your community, your neighborhood, your neighbors, the people God puts in your life in tangible ways. Those both matter. It's, it's not that easy, like I said, but it is that simple. So where are we on life support? Ask yourself. Kind of on the one hand, where are you dismissing truth that Jesus loves but you don't care about? You don't care what he says for whatever reason. Where are you prejudiced and cold to your neighbors and to your community, to people and issues that Jesus cares deeply about. Because a living faith needs both. Asking which is more important is like asking, what do I need more, oxygen or water? Without either one, you're dying. You're dying. Sardis is missing something. And it's killing them. But Jesus isn't done. He, he gives another metaphor here. This is verse two. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it. Repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come against you. So like I said, Jesus switches metaphors here. Now he's talking to the church. He's saying, you're not only dying, you're drowsy. You're sleeping. And now Jesus is the alarm clock. Wake up. Now what's interesting to me is this is a very common metaphor for Jesus. He uses this a lot. Um, all of this language around staying awake and a thief in the night and then his unexpected arrival is all over the New Testament. It's in Mark 13. It's in Matthew 24. It's the same picture in, that we get in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's probably the most vivid place we get it. If you remember that story, Jesus and his disciples uh, are preparing for Jesus' arrest and eventual death. Jesus leaves his disciples in one part of the garden. He goes off to pray and prepare. He comes back and they're all asleep. Do you remember what Jesus says? It's one of the most damning questions. Can you not stay awake for one hour with me? This is all over Jesus' teaching. Here's what strikes me about this. It's easy to read those warnings, and even this one in chapter 3 of Revelation, and think Jesus is warning some of us that we might fall asleep. But I don't think that's what he's doing. 
We are all, the thing about sleep is that it's inevitable. If I, I won't. But if I did, if I stood up here and kept talking hour after hour after hour, what would happen? Eventually, all of you would fall asleep. This is Jesus' point. Not that some of you might, but that all of you will if we are not diligent. I think this is why Jesus uses this metaphor over and over and over again. It's why he uses it with this church in Sardis. It's because we are always this close to sleeping. We all doze off spiritually. We may look very good on the outside. But we, we have to fight diligently to stay awake. That is Jesus' point. The only churches who are not falling asleep are the ones who are worried about falling asleep. Asking themselves, how do I stay awake? So are we fighting off spiritual sleep? Or are we succumbing to it? Are we giving into it? And here's what's so scary about this. And this is why Jesus is so adamant. Because think about sleep. There's nothing more numbing or deadening or dangerous than sleep in this regard. Sleep makes reason and reality completely useless to you. And here's what I mean by that. I don't know if you, if you have a sibling or a spouse or a friend or a roommate who talks in their sleep. Anybody ever? You've been to camp and someone in your cabin talks in their sleep. There's no need to point fingers. There's no need to point fingers. Um, have you ever tried talking to them in their sleep? It's kind of fun. Have you ever tried to reason with them in their sleep? Right, because the story is, you know, the dream is different, but the story is the same. They, they sit up in bed, they say something ridiculous like, who let the clowns all over the room? Have you ever tried, have you seriously tried to say, no, you're fine, go back to sleep, there's nothing, you're just dreaming? Do they ever look at you and say, oh, thank you? <laughs> I didn't realize what was going on. I, I, I hadn't, no, no, the dream is so captivating that reason and reality cannot penetrate it. Then you hear these horror stories of people falling downstairs or driving their cars or starting a fire in their sleep. Why? Because they are completely cut off from reality. They have no idea what's going on. That's scary enough. Jesus says this is what's happening in the soul of this church. They're so convinced that they're alive, that they're okay, that they're awake, but they're dreaming. And in their slumber, it's all good. Meanwhile, Jesus is shaking them awake. He's saying the house is on fire. Wake up. And we have that same dynamic. And, you know, we talk a lot about Monday, God's mission for us on Monday. Here's the thing about Monday, though. Whatever God has you, the details, the minutia of your life, they, those things work really, really hard to put us back to sleep. I don't know, you've probably all seen the movie Wizard of Oz, but probably not many of you have read the book. Um, you remember that scene in the poppy fields where the gang makes it to the poppy fields and they start falling asleep? And in the movie, it's just kind of silly uh, because the whole movie is just kind of silly. I have no idea what it's about. But, the, um, but in the book, when, when the same scene occurs, the, they get really scared because they realize if we all fall asleep, we may never leave this place. Our Monday lives are poppy fields. The to-do lists and the busyness and the work problem and the house problem and the minor frustration, the distraction, the little hopes and little dreams that make up every day, they work to numb us, to deaden us. 
and to convince us that they and nothing more are actually what is real in life, that they matter most. And suddenly we're sleepwalking through the day. Do you know what has that ever happened to you? And, and Jesus, he gives two remedies here for this church to wake up. The first one, he says, remember. Remember what you received and heard. And a big part of that truly is Sunday morning. Remembering together from the singing to the community, to the teaching, to the communion, to the benediction. Every minute of this time it should be a smelling salt for us. Wake us up. Remind us what matters. When we remember these little things that if, right, if you're a follower of Jesus here, you know, you know, but you forget. Like, oh, that's right, Jesus is Lord. And that means that only his opinion matters. That everything I do serves him. That's right, it's not about my boss or my friends or my whatever, whatever audience you're trying to live in front of, it's about him. Oh, that's right, Jesus is Lord of the universe. He holds everything in his hands. There's nothing that can come my way that he is surprised by, that he is not in control of. I can trust him, and I can trust his hope and his news more than cable and social media, right? All that stuff. It's like it wakes you up. Sunday morning is waking up and remembering, that's right, this is what is real. Seeing through the fog. Part of staying awake is coming here and worshiping together, and remembering the story of God that transcends all those little things that try to put you to sleep. That's what we do. Remember. He also says repent. Jesus says repent. <clears throat> and repent um, is one of those words maybe you've heard before, and, and usually when we hear it, at least me, I think, say, you know, say you're sorry. Say you're sorry for something. Um, that's an apology, that may be part of repenting, but repenting is more than that. Repenting in the Bible is turning away from something that's pulling you away from Jesus and turning back to him. That's repentance. And here in this context, I think at least part of that, maybe even for you this morning, is praying to Jesus and admitting to him, Jesus, I'm tired, I'm sleepy, I can't stay awake, I need your help. Now here's part of the irony of all this. There's a great irony here. And actually, it's, 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 it's all over the Christian life, and you, and you see it here as, as well. It's that we are never more at risk of falling asleep than when we are convinced we're wide awake and don't need any help. That is the riskiest moment if you're a follower of Jesus. The key to staying awake, according to Jesus, that's where you, this word repent, it's a, cons, it's a constant reminder, I can't do it, I can't do it on my own. <clears throat> this word repent. Jesus says, the key to staying awake is to have so little confidence in your own ability to rouse yourself from sleep that you are constantly asking for help. And here's the image that came to my mind. It's like if life's like a road trip. Have you ever done a long road trip by yourself? Some, some of you are introverts, and you're like, that sounds like heaven. Uh, but um, and you, you probably all, we probably all had that moment where we're driving, and the hum of the car and the warm air and the monotony of, of the, the lines, right? Your eyes start closing. You get drowsy in the road. 
And no amount of caffeine or music or whatever can keep you awake. And other than a good night's sleep, what you need most is a friend, someone with you. This is part, this community is a part of God's supernatural power to keep you awake. Are there people in your life who can jab you in the ribs, watch the road, wake up? Or are you doing this alone? Are you, are you living the white-knuckled, I've got this life? That's not what God has for you. It's not what God has for this community. So are we fighting to stay awake together? Okay, Jesus gives, he gives one more picture here for the dying church. This is a picture of hope. I want you to look at verse four. He's, he says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy and the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, this, this metaphor of clothing now is one is also very common to Jesus. And it's in Revelation. You see it all throughout the book, what we wear, our clothing. And here in the white, white, white robes in particular are, are, are always mentioned with God's persevering church. They are clothed in white. And Jesus gives a dynamic here that's happening in this church. Um, he says, some of you are still wearing the clothes of the world. He calls them soiled garments, but that's the idea. They're the things we try to cover ourselves with that really only make things worse. And we don't know what it was for the church in Sardis. I don't know if it was compromise or idolatry or any of the number of other things we've talked about. I have no idea. But he also says, some of you are wearing white, which is the clothing only God can give. And here's the thing, there's an echo here of another story. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of the Bible, you remember Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. They sin, they disobey, they run and they hide, and then what do they do? They try to cover themselves. They realize they're naked for the first time. And so they grab, fig, you know, the fig leaf is kind of the, the common image, but they grab leaves and they try to, they, they, they try to cover their shame that they have never, they've never known, but now they know. And all of us, this is the human story. Because, right? we, we all feel now this deep sense of exposure. It's not physical. It's, it's spiritual. It's emotional. We, we, we feel the sense that we are not enough. We're ashamed of who we are. We're scared if anyone saw us for what we truly are, so we cover up. And we, and we can do that in any number of ways. The list is endless. Some of us, it's, it's achievement at work or with family or, or romance, substances, financial security, comfort, right? Any number of things, like fig leaves, we paste them onto our lives to prove I'm okay, I'm good. But all throughout the story, God provides an alternative. Adam and Eve, all the way back in the garden, as they're leaving, it's like God stops them and says, those fig leaves will not do. He clothes them as they leave and it becomes an option now. It becomes a choice now for all humanity. You, God's saying, your, your effort, your idolatry will not work. Let me do this. I can cover you. So now our, we can put on our own solutions to shame and, our, and in our drowsy, sleepy, dreamy sickness, we can look in the mirror and say, I look great. Or we can put on the robes of white that only God can give. And then you remember that this Jesus, the same Jesus who's offering this to us, there's a reason why in every gospel account of his death, 
He is stripped naked. That is in every account. It's Jesus saying, your shame, I take it all. It's all on me. He's been through all of it. And he is adamant now to anyone who receives the gospel of forgiveness and repents, I will cover. Whatever beauty and glory and goodness and purity and power that is Jesus, he says, I put it on you. I clothe you now. So Jesus says, bring your shame and your disappointment, bring your sin, bring your nakedness, bring who you really are when nobody's around and you're terrified if they ever saw it and I will clothe you in robes of white. I will make you a son and a daughter. I will make you heirs of eternity. Or as Revelation says, right, I will make you a pure, spotless bride. And some of us, me, I, I need to wake up and get dressed. I don't know about you. So here's what I want us to do. Okay, we're going to take communion here in just a minute. Before we do that, I, I, wanna, I want us to remember and repent a little bit together. So I'm going to pray. And you may, oh, I'm, I almost killed myself for service here too. Uh, I'm going to pray. And you may find yourself in one of these prayers. I don't know. But let's, uh, what, if, if you're, everything in your hands, put it, put it down. If you've got a phone, notes, whatever, put it down. Let's focus here together. Father, I want to pray for people this morning. I want to pray for the overconfident in this room this morning. The person who's listened to the sermon and sung these songs, but they are going through the motions because they think they've got this. They don't need anybody's help. There's no urgency to their faith. There's no urgency to their life. God, we repent of that overconfidence. Help us to wake up and put on Jesus. Father, I pray for the board this morning. They're physically here, but mentally they are far, far away. They are so distracted. They are so enraptured by anything else that they'd rather be doing. They cannot hear your voice. God, we repent of our boredom that we do not take you seriously. Help us to wake up and put on Jesus. And Father, I pray for those who are still asleep this morning. They've never woken up to you. They've never heard your voice. Because the calendar and the work and the social ladder and the retirement goal and the friend, whatever it is, all the little things in life, those are all that are real. There's nothing bigger than that. They do not know you, Father. We repent of our hardness of heart. Help us to wake up, Holy Spirit, and put on Jesus today. And Father, I pray for those who have a a great reputation for being alive, but they are dead. They look great. They sound great. They say the right things. They do the right things, but inside they're drifting from you. You aren't real to them anymore. Father, we repent of our lack of diligence for neglecting our first love, forgetting what we received at first. Wake us up and help us to put on Jesus today. Father, it is not too late. There's still time. Wake us up. We pray all this in the name of Jesus.